Matthew chapter 16, page 1524 in the Bench Bibles, beginning the reading at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. These, the very words of God, will focus on the verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea, the name after Caesar, honoring Caesar, Philippi, the local ruler, but Caesarea Philippi says a lot more than its name. For one thing, we have Jesus here just before his all-important last journey to Jerusalem. 
This is a high point in his life in which he is preparing the disciples for the low points to come as his humiliation goes on. We also have Jesus at Caesarea Philippi at the northwestern edge of his area of ministry. And we also appear to have something of a little retreat or vacation before that last journey to Jerusalem. A key question is why Jesus chose Caesarea Philippi and why he asked there what he asked and how Peter's answer is important. Let's just meditate on these things and I hope after this morning this passage will mean more to you than ever before and mean much for the rest of your lives and that that all-important title, Christ, will sink in as it never has before. Caesarea Philippi, located at the base of Mount Hermon, the big tall mountain with lots of snow in the winter on top, the only one in the region with significant snowfall. Mount Hermon was made of a kind of porous rock where the rains and the snow melt would sink into the mountainous rocks. And what sinks in and down came out at Caesarea Philippi. Water came out from the mountain and the water came out of the mountain in such a way that it appeared to be coming up out of the mountain. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a beautiful area, open to tourists today. I've been there, maybe some of you have. At Caesarea Philippi, it appears water is coming out from down below. And to the ancient mind, that meant gates, Nowadays, we would say doorway, probably. Gates to the underworld. Now, in Old Testament times, Caesarea Philippi was a very important religious center. In fact, the ancient pagans cut out the rock above the water and put idols there, little idol gods, including Pluto, the god of the underworld. Today, by the way, the shelf where the ancient gods were is still there. You can see the cutout plain as day, except that there's no more pagan gods or anything else on the shelf area. Caesarea Philippi, if I may describe it as one who's been there at least briefly here. Beautiful for the area. The water makes lush grass all around and there are trees and it just is almost paradisical to use a word that is partly right but also partly wrong for a place that's the gates of hell. But at the same time, you, if you understand the ancient mindset, you feel the eeriness Beauty combined with 
eerie, almost satanic feel to the area. Now, Jesus took his disciples there to Caesarea Philippi. And interestingly now, when Jesus gets his disciples there, the part of the conversation that's recorded for us in Holy Scripture is that key question Jesus asks, who do people say the Son of Man is? Okay. Let me leave that question with you for a few minutes to talk about the fact that Caesarea Philippi was in its time considered to be the entryway to hell. Jesus is going to refer to hell in a few verses. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And maybe it's worth saying gates in Bible times were defensive big doorways. Gates were on the walls of cities, the stone or block walls with the gates that were shut at night as a defensive mechanism against robbers and raiders. And so therefore, when Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, Hades, I'll get to that word in a minute, what he's saying is, here at Caesarea Philippi, I am announcing something so amazing, so wondrous, the formation of my church. And that church will succeed me on planet earth when I ascend into heaven. And that church will succeed against every foe, including the devil, including hell itself. That's what Caesarea Philippi is about. Jesus spoke more of hell than anyone else in the Bible, including here in this passage we read. And I want you to understand a little about hell in order to lead you to the importance of that confession that Jesus is the Christ. The Old Testament has a word for hell that in some words, uh, versions of the Bible is left in literal Hebrew transliteration, so maybe you've heard of it, it's Sheol. And Sheol means in the first sense, simply grave. But Bible words have both a literal meaning and figurative meaning. And Sheol therefore means literally grave and figuratively afterlife. And already in the Old Testament, you read about the afterlife both negatively, bad place for bad people, and positively, good place where God dwells and God's people dwell. We won't cite references. If you want one, go to Psalm 1 and read the last verse. That much we know from the word Sheol. Now the next thing, and this sermon is going to get ugly for just a minute here. In later Old Testament times, we had the kings of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Two of the kings of Judah, Ahaz by name and Manasseh, 
the other one by name, followed up on something Solomon did. Solomon had pagan wives, literally, probably political alliance indicators. But one of Solomon's sins was he allowed these pagan wives to worship their pagan gods. And he built on the southwest side of Jerusalem in a valley there called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. An idol god that goes by different names, but mostly Molech. And Molech was the god of the Phoenicians, Jezebel's people. And Molech had open firearms here. They put fire in Molech. And they would sacrifice animals. And sometimes they would sacrifice children. And as a matter of fact, we have archaeological records that in war times it was as many as one child a day. But sometimes kings, thinking they could please the false god Molech, would put one of their children into Molech's firearms and burn them to death. The applications here are many. Two brief ones that we won't linger on because they're not our main point. One, God's people imitate the world way too much and way too often. And I don't know what to do about it, but they do. But how could two kings, not of the north, this is Judah, the south, supposedly the, the better of the two kingdoms. How could they dump their children, maybe even their oldest children, the prince, you, it, the Bible doesn't say. But how could they dump children into a pagan idol? Dear people of God, don't follow the world today. Don't, you know, and don't feel somehow above pagans. We, our, our abortion is just as gruesome, okay? That was the second application. Abortion is that child murder too. But, but today's world, existentialism, this existence and materialism as if money and material and more and more money and material can buy happiness. God's people fall into it too. Some of them don't even have an hour to worship God. But like I said, they're not our application, so that's just a brief note here. But at any rate, two of the kings of Judah, Ahaz and Manasseh. Ahaz lived in the 700s. Manasseh was his grandson in the 600s. They dumped children and sacrificed them to Molech. Now the prophets, of course, hollered against that practice, and rightly so. And one of the prophets even said, the valley of Hinnom, and in Hebrew Aramaic, that's Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom will become a waste place. Okay. By New Testament times, after exile, return, and all of that, the valley of Hinnom, in their language, Gehenna or Gehana, Gehenna, was the city dump. And there in the city dump, you would put everything from garbage to even dead dogs, dead animals, and possibly dead criminals, so they also had a burial field for them. 
Now, when Jesus comes along, he speaks of hell 11 times, 12, I think. One of them uses a word other than Gehenna, and that's in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we guess is a different word used for the Greek audience. But Jesus, who speaks of hell more than anybody else, uses the word Gehenna, and that's the word he uses here, too. Now, hell, of course, final hell, is more than a garbage dump. But I can't tell you too much about final hell other than I can't, and I can't tell you too much about final heaven. We have to stick with Bible details. But I know that that word Gehenna means garbage dump or trash pile of the universe. That's what it means. And you don't want to go there. But when you understand that word Gehenna, you also will understand why some of the Bible images that may appear to be contradictory. For instance, fires never stop burning. That was true in the Jerusalem garbage dump there. And outer darkness. Well, fire <laughs> gives firelight. What's going on? But when you think of Gehenna, the two images of fire and outer darkness, there were no streetlights in Gehenna or anywhere in those days, make perfect sense. There's no contradiction there. But what Jesus is saying is, hell itself, and like I said, he speaks more of it than anybody else, hell itself is not going to be able to withstand my church. Now, go back to the first verses and we'll continue through. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, okay, where earth supposedly went up to Mount Hermon where the gods lived or you could build altars and get closer to the gods or down to the underworld, he asked his disciples, might have asked them a lot, but this is what the Holy Spirit records in the scripture. Who do people say the Son of Man is. About that phrase, son of man, let me only say this. It was Jesus' favorite self-designation based on Daniel's prophecy, which said someone who is really divine is also going to become son of, and that means human. So son of man is a claim to divinity in Daniel, and Jesus' favorite self-title. But he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the disciples, what he re immediately recognized, he's talking about himself. Now, verse 14. They replied, some say, John the Baptist. Okay, the scuttlebutt about Jesus and who he is includes he's John the Baptist, come back to life. Others say Elijah. You know your Bibles well enough to know he was the fiery prophet, lived about 900 years before Christ. Elijah was known in Hebrew history guesswork, but as the one who would announce 
the coming of the kingdom and the coming of Messiah. And others, Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet, and the one who announced the doom of the nation, or one of the prophets. Now, what do you hear in those words? There's a little bit of compliment in them, right? In the scuttlebutt people are saying about Jesus. I mean, we had the Old Testament prophets who had their prophecies and their pictures of a coming Messiah. Prophets were those who foretold, thus saith the Lord, and foretold this is coming. But at the same time, these answers, some say, well, on the surface, complementary, are also derogatory if Jesus is more than a mere prophet. Now, to continue with answers to the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? As you go forward in New Testament history, you get, shall I say, a gazillion answers. I had to study all of them in seminary. I summarized them into four things. Some people say he's a good man. Oh, he, his ethics are so wonderful and high. Or he's a good man, a positive thinker. He talks about great faith. Oh, what a good man he is. C.S. Lewis stabbed that one to death. C.S. Lewis said, more people say Jesus is a good man than anything else about him. He can't be a good man because if he's a good man, he also claimed to be the God-man. And if he's not the God-man, he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's not a good man. He's a bad man. So therefore, he's not a mere good man. Lewis is right on. Some people say good man. Others say bad man. I remember having to read a book by someone named Schoenfield. The, the, the Messiah imposter, as if he was some kind of imposter Christ. They had a couple in those days. They're mentioned in the book of Acts. Good man, bad man. Others say madman. He's a lunatic. One eraser short of a whole pencil. One story short of a skyscraper type of thing. And then there's good man, bad man. Man, mad, mad man, and then sad man. There he is on the cross, so sad, because he is failing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, by the way, ultimately is not a cry of failure. It's a cry of the biggest success possible, but that's not our subject either. But you see, who is Jesus? Key question, all right. Some say one of the prophets, John the Baptist, good man, bad man, mad man, sad man. We need the right answer. And that's where our text is so key here at Caesarea Philippi. Verse 15, but what about you, he asked, who do you say 
I am. And then Simon Peter, answering for the twelve, says, You are the Christ. Now, Messiah, this version has footnote A, it's right on. Or Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word for the most important person to come in history, bringing in the kingdom of God. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. You're the Messiah or the Christ. So Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now notice that little phrase, living, a minute in passing. Every word counts here if you understand the context. Those pagan gods at the top of Mount Hermon, were they alive? The gods of the underworld, Pluto and so, were they alive? No, that's a bunch of mythology about dead gods. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, the real God, the one and only. But maybe even more important than that word living yet is you are the Christ. The three most important names for Jesus in the Bible are Jesus Savior, Matthew 121. He'll save his people from their sins. Messiah Christ, John 1. Peter says, we have found the Christ. Matthew 1.1, the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Christ is a title. And Lord, which means ruler or boss. Now, here the emphasis is on Christ, and I want you to understand what's so important about the Christ. They found an ancient relic once called the Portland, and it's V-A-S-E. Some people say vase, and some say vase, and I think both words are okay. I'll say vase. The Portland vase, which is a Roman glass-like and glass even ornament from the time of Christ, very valuable. You could look it up in a, online in a long article about it even, and there are some unknowns about it, also guesses that it's a fake. But at any rate, let me read you one account of the Portland vase here and what happened to it. It came to England. It says the Duke of Norfolk gave the Portland vase as a gift to the King of England and the King of England put this beautiful antique in the British Museum. But something bad happened. An enemy of the king a man they say either was filled with hatred or was a bad man, got into the British Museum. The Portland vase was its most valuable antique, was in a case, guarded, by the way, but the guard had to leave a minute for the restroom. The man waited for the guard to leave, and when the guard wasn't there and nobody was looking at the vase, that man took it out of its case 
and smashed it on the floor into what the story calls a thousand pieces. The king was very sad. What can be done? They looked throughout all of England, Scotland, Wales, for someone who could put it back together again. It was the days before they had photos. They found one man in the whole kingdom who could do what nobody else could do. And the king hired him. He spent years putting it together with adhesive, piece by piece, a couple pieces he never did get in. And since then, by the way, the story I'm telling you is from the 17 and 1800s. They've restored it anew because the uh, epoxy that was holding it together got old. But going back to when I'm telling you about, the man put it together so that it looked almost as good as it originally was. And when he finished the work, he died. Here's what this story says to me. I never forgot it. There's only one who's qualified to put back together the brokenness of humanity. He's qualified because he is the incarnate, fully divine, fully human Son of God. He can do what no other mere human can do. Now, God created you very special in his image after his likeness. You're more like God than animals. Image of God means three things, uniquely human. No God, I've talked about this before. Any animals or mice running around church here, they can't know God. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. A cow that kicks you or whatever, a bee that bites you, they're not sinning because they're not human. Knowledge, righteousness, holiness, worshipful activity, only humans can do those things. God made you so very, very special. And then sin came along and wrecked havoc. It like smashed you into a thousand pieces. You were a mess. And then comes the Christ, the one and only, the qualified one. Christ means anointed one, like our president was anointed to be president, but Anointed doesn't always speak today. Anointed means able. Christ is the able one to put you back together, sinner, once you've been smashed into a thousand pieces. And so now here in Matthew 16, when Peter says what Peter says, Peter does not say you are the best prophet of them all. Oh, no. That would still be a bit demeaning. Peter says instead, you are the Christ. And that just means everything. In the context of Caesarea, Philippi shouts out that you're real in contrast to all these false gods. It shouts out you're higher than the alleged gods of the mountains. It shouts out you are more than the underworld. You are the one who can do good in the underworld or the afterlife. 
See, that Christ just says everything. You're the special one of God. And to that, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter. No wonder Jesus says that. Peter got it. The disciples got it. And then there's a lot more, of course, about church and so that really a different sermon. We won't get into it today, but to remind you again, the gates of Hades, the disciples in the name of Christ will go out and we get Christ and we get Christians and we get the church Christ loves. By the way, please love the church. I think you do. That's why you're worshiping here. But so many today lower the church to just another business like Sam's or Costco and treat the church like it's in the business of selling God. And ministers are supposed to sell God to anyone who will say, God can help me make a better life. That's such a tragedy. Ephesians 5 says to love the church because you love the Christ. That's here. In Matthew 16, too. And that church went out from Caesarea Philippi, Pentecost on, and it has not failed in spite of all its failures and weaknesses. And it is still today assaulting the gates of hell. So, dear people of God, I praise God that you love the church. And you love the Christ who also loved the church. Also trust that you understand and appreciate anew that title, Christ. He's Jesus the Christ. Go out. In the name of Christ. And live for Christ in this world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this incredible text that we could focus on today here. Help us to appreciate the text anew, afresh, and for the rest of our lives. And obviously, here in the text, our attention is on the Christ and directed to him and the work he's able to do. And for that, we give you praise. Amen.